Tampa Bay's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. So here, on a hot, late summer day, a team of the world's finest engineers, technicians, and drivers are gathered. In this makeshift garage, the men are carefully tuning a streamlined, supercharged model of the famous British-made Austin Healey. Working on the car at the moment are Austin's Eric Bale of Canada and Roger Minadou of England, with Gordon Whitby of Goff Industries, Los Angeles. This sleekly designed special will be driven by Donald Healy himself to satisfy a lifetime ambition of driving a car of his own design at a speed of over 200 miles per hour. Soon as every mechanical detail is thoroughly checked, the car will be towed to the famous Bonneville Salt Flats, a carefully selected natural speedway covering approximately 200 square miles of the vast expanse that was once part of the Great Salt Lake. In its natural state, the surface of the flats is marked by salt ridges, such as these. It must be scraped regularly with heavy drags to maintain a perfectly smooth back surface. In the garage, 15 miles away, the streamliner receives the finishing touches. A careful polish is given the plexiglass canopy by Jeffrey Healy, technical director for all Austin Healy speedruns. His face reflects both his pride in the mechanical in its ultimate performance. Just before daybreak the following day, the car is towed to the Bonneville straightaway course. It is here that it will be driven by Donald Healy in an attempt to achieve the tremendous speed for which the car has been so painstakingly designed and engineered. Time, 4.46 a.m. The timing officials stand by ready and waiting. The car, sleek and beautiful in the early morning sun, waits at the head of the 14-mile straightaway. Three miles down the course, the photoelectric eyes are ready to flash the beginning of the measured mile to the official timing stand. The crew of technicians are all on hand, and the Healy Special is moved into position for the push-off. Donald Healy is understandably impatient for the run to begin, as Jack Bowell makes the final mechanical adjustment. Racing gear is donned as tension mounts and he enters the car. The Perspex bubble is lowered and secured. The car is pushed off. And in a moment, we'll be flying down the course in a terrific burst of speed. Set the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. This is Bill Warren.
Corner of the Amelia Island Concord Delegates, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm my show host, Robert. Run to your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, 600 and some odd shows, I lost track. It's been 13 years. We just had our 13-year anniversary last week, so it's a lot of shows. Figure we do 52 shows a year. All right, so that's quite a few. Anyway. I'm not real good with math, 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 mathematics, but anyway. Uh, so check out NostalgicRadioCars.com, and that's where you can go to the archive page, or some people refer to it as a podcast, and you can listen to all the past shows, including this one later this evening. Anyway, we've got a great show for you tonight. Um, a lot of times what I do is I go to car shows or big car events, and I very often run into very interesting people. And since the name of the show is Nostalgic Radio and Cars, um, we have a lot of nostalgic people on our show. Right, Matt? Absolutely and Ab- sweetly. Sweetly, yeah. Anyway, so, and, and keep in mind, you know, I had, I had a guy say to me one time, he goes, hey, you know, you get a lot of uh, really old people on your show. And I said to him, I said, let me put it to you like this. If it weren't for those very, very elderly people, gentlemen and ladies, um, and I'll use some examples, let's just say Carol Shelby or uh, um, Denise McCluggage, okay? Um, these people were around, these guys, these people are like pioneers, you know, particularly during the 50s, 60s, you know, when racing was really, really coming on real strong, particularly after the war. If you follow racing as far as sports car racing, and that's what I'm referring to this evening, don't get me wrong, there was circle track, there was round and round, there was drag racing, there was street racing, there was all kinds of racing going on. But it really, really took off in the in the early 50s. But as far as sports car racing, that really took off kind of as the soldiers kind of came back from World War II. And we can attribute a lot of that success with uh, sports car racing in the United States with uh, General LeMay. And if I said this wrong, I'm sure Alan's going to call me and correct me or text me. I should have my phone on text. Uh, but at any rate, so he basically um, got to uh, set it up so that they could do a lot of sports car racing in um, on military bases. And um, so anyway, where I'm going with this is my first car was an Austin Healey, 65 Austin Healey, 19, uh, MK3 3000 Phase 1. There was a Phase 1 and a Phase 2. And uh, and big Healy's. We, if you listen to the show, uh, going back a number of years, we had Jerry Coker on a show. At the time, was 94 years old, and he was the... Gentleman responsible for penning, designing the original Big Healy, okay? And there were other Healy's before that. We'll get into that later in the show because we've got a very special guest coming on the show this evening. And it's probably one of, the most, uh, one of the foremost experts in the Austin Healy world or Healy world in general. And uh, so anyway, where I'm going with this is that a couple, three, four weeks ago, I went to a little itty-bitty little car show in Williston, Florida. I was coming back from Gainesville checking out some stuff. That never materialized, but you know, you, you you don't give up. You always say, "Well, if Plan A doesn't work, you go to Plan B. If Plan D doesn't work, you go to Plan C, D." And there's 26 letters in the alphabet, and you keep working at it until something happens. But one of the things I used to love to do, and I did a lot of this back when fuel was cheap, and now I had a few extra bucks, is I would drive around and 
hunt for cars. And I was doing this back in the 70s, way before, you know, well, not that I'm the only guy that ever did it, but I'm just saying way before it was kind of like a fad thing, you know, like it is today. That's back when we just, you know, you didn't have a lot of money. You couldn't really go to a car lot, so you're hoping you just got lucky and you found something in somebody's garage on the weekend when the garage door was open or sitting behind their back in their backyard and behind the fence or something like that that you could see. You could just see a little itty bitty piece of the car, but you knew what it was, you know, especially if you're kind of well read. Like Alan, who's probably listened to the show, who was my guest last week. Uh, thanks, Alan, for coming on the show last week. That was fun, having a, a, the, the, going through all the old Auto Trader ads. We're going to do that again. That's actually kind of fun doing that, the old Auto Trader ads, Road and Track, Motor Trend, Auto Week, and things like that. Kind of puts the car thing in perspective a little bit. But nonetheless, so when I was going to this little car show that I saw online advertised by our friends, FloridaCarshows.com, FLACarshows.com. By the way, check them out. That's where all the car shows are in the uh, state of Florida. And uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff there. It was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And I almost blew past it. I didn't even really, I wasn't paying any attention to Navi, navigation. And it kind of caught my eye, the sign for the park where this thing was taking event or taking place. And there was only like seven or eight or nine cars there and maybe some trucks and stuff. And I said, ah, what the heck? But as I blew past it, I saw this Austin Healy Bug Eye Sprite sitting there in the parking lot, the red one. And it caught my attention. I said, I got to turn around. If there's one part, you know how you have this instinct, you got this gut feeling. And I'm an instant gut feeling kind of guy. And uh, so I turned around, long story short, met the guy, talked to the guy, Ted Healy. His first car was a Healy. My first car was a Healy. Alan's first car was a Healy. And uh, so he said, yeah, you know, there's this big Healy show coming up uh, in Crystal River here in, in, uh, in, in the summer. I said, oh, really? Summer? Wow, hot summer. <laughs> and I said, it's probably at the Plantation, which is where the MG guys get together, the Porsche guys get together, and other BMW club gets up together up there and so on. And anyway, so that evening when I got home, he sent me an email, and the email said, hey, that car show I told you about is called the Conclave. So shout out to the Conclave guys. And uh, it's next weekend, or this coming weekend, in Crystal River. I said, oh. So I went and researched it real quick, found out where it was, checked it all out, showed up there on Sunday, did a little meet and greet with some of the guys, ran into some local friends that I knew from Pinellas County and so on. And uh, then yesterday they had a big car show there. So well, yesterday when I was out there, it was the Plantation Hotel. And so yesterday when I was there, I was just kind of walking around, ran into my good friend Walt Mainberger out of Sarasota, who's got a bunch of Heelys, a really, really cool 100, by the way, tricked out. And then there was just a number of really cool cars. I will be posting those on our Facebook page um, following some of the other events that are taking place this week. So the Conclave is like a – it's kind of a national meet, but kind of – not a national meet. And so in this particular case, it dragged cars from all over the eastern seaboard. But obviously, uh, Florida attracts a lot of people, but not like they do up north. I don't know. I can't explain because when you go to car shows up north and when they have really, really, they have huge turnouts up there, unlike Florida. And, I, and I'm going to venture to say that the heat has a little something to do with that. Nonetheless, there was 100 plus cars there. Really, really nice stuff. All kinds of Heelys, Bug Eye, Sprites, Bug Eye Sprites. Um, MK1s, MK2s, MK3s, uh, 106s, 104s, 104s phase or uh, ones, 104s series two. And when you get into the heel, we'll be getting into that shortly. But at any rate, so I said, is there somebody here that's like the the authority on Austin Healy's? And they said, well, yeah, sure, there is. And the guy's name's Bill. And uh, I said, is he here? He well, he was. And I said, well, how do I get a hold of him? And they gave me his number. So I come to find out that he's local. And uh, I talked to him. And uh, I went over to his house today. And he had a little uh, meet and greet over there. 
And I was pretty impressed. Big shout out to Nancy, too. She was there. And a big shout out to Midge, if she's listening, because her husband, she informed me what a dirty Healy was. I never heard that expression before. And I'm thinking, well, your car's not washed. You know, it's not clean, dirty. You know, she goes, and, and then they use the term nasty Healy. And I go, or nasty boy Healy. And I go, nasty boy Healy. Dirty Healy. Jeez. Wow. Now, I'll go into Porsches real quick. And Porsches, we use the term outlaw. In old school hot rods, we use the term old school or period hot rods. Or sometimes they use the term resto mod, which is using later model stuff. Um, Porsche's outlaw because we kind of it's kind of original, but yet you did a little few things change it, so it's not exactly uh, a, a perfect concourse restored car, but it's kind of tricked out and it's got a lot of character to it. Outlaw, and you're like you're going against the grain, you know. So you're not original, but you're doing something a little bit different, changing motor, tires, wheels, interiors, things like that, colors. Well, in the Healy world, they use the term uh, nasty boy or dirty Healy. So I kind of thought that was kind of cool. Anyway, so the gentleman that I will be having on the phone here shortly is the one of the foremost experts on Austin Healy's. And since every once in a while we do feature marks, I figured, well, Healy's, very appropriate. And uh, so let's, uh, without further ado, I think uh, Matt's going to fire up some music for us. We're going to play a little jazz because this gentleman likes jazz. We're going to do a little Mal Davis, right? Senior, that's what we got said. Let's do it. Let's do it, and then we're going to get our guests on in a few minutes. So don't touch that dial. We will be we 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 we'll be right back with our special guest for the evening. So you're tuned in to Nostalgia Radio Cars. Enjoy a little Miles Davis. Thank you. 
This is the annoying Jay Leno, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Actually, the sound effect should have been uh, road race cars, but drag racing is okay. We'll 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 go with that. All anyway, right. <laughs> Matt, great job, great job. Thank you. Anyway, sir. it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Like I mentioned earlier, this gentleman is probably considered the foremost authority on the Austin Healy or Healy brand. And I just met him today. He invited me over to his house, an amazing collection of cars and memorabilia and literature. He's an author, a collector, a racer, and just an all-around fabulous guy. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Bill Emerson. Bill, how are you? I'm just great. Thanks very much for the introduction. Yeah, I think I was pretty close, wasn't I? You're pretty damn close. You're right. <laughs> well, now, um, give us a little background on yourself. Um, give us the uh, short story, and then we'll, we'll I'll ask you questions, and then we'll get into kind of like a little uh, exchange. Okay. I started driving tractors when I was nine years old, and I've been driving things with steering wheels ever since. <laughs> uh, actually, I... I uh, have loved cars all of my life and i got into the Healy's when i it was over in japan working for the japanese space agency and i came back to california and in japan it rained all the time and i couldn't read the road signs and they drove on the other side of the street i got back into california they were driving on the right side of the street it was sunny and i wanted a convertible and I couldn't, I looked at the American convertibles and I lost a lot of money if I drove them out of the showroom. I'd always like Austin Healy's. I saw them when they first came out. I was a student at the University of Miami when the Healy was on first announced and shown down in Miami. But I couldn't afford one at the time. Well, when I got back from Japan, I could afford a Healy and I started looking for one and I ended up with a race car out of Canada. And it turned up that it was uh, a little unusual. It had power brakes and it had some other funny little things on it. And I talked to Jeff Healy, Donald Healy's son about the car. And he said, "Uh, where did you get that? And I said, from a racer up in Canada. And he said, uh, I put those modifications on, and that was our first rally car. And since then, I've been playing with Healy's. I've been involved with them uh, since 1977. So this was in 1977 when you got your first Healy? That's when I got my first Healy. I had a, it was a BN1 that had been modified uh, by Jeff Healy with the Le Mans kit on it to make it go faster. It had a high-speed rear end. Uh, it had lots of cool specialties on it. So you mentioned you were in Japan, and you uttered the word space. Why don't you take us to the space background a little bit here? Give us a little uh, introduction on your uh, space involvement. Okay. I started in the uh, American Space Program in 1959, and I was working at a place called Kodiak Island, Alaska, in a satellite tracking station. And I worked up there for two years and learned 
uh, in the beginning of the American space program, how things work. And I've continued in the space program. I left there and I ended up going to New Hampshire and worked at the tracking station there. And then I, I got a crazy phone call and uh, was a friend of mine in NASA Langley who said, uh, I've had a heart attack. I want you to take over my job. And I went down there to take the interview, and the first question the man asked me is, where's your Ph.D. from? And I said, I don't have a Ph.D. He said, well, the requirement is Ph.D. in engineering. I said, well, I'm sorry that I've uh, taken up your time. And we talked for a little bit, and I noticed that he had a, a pin, tie pin on from the Nautilus, and I asked him if he knew a certain person, and he got a big surprised look on his face, and he said yes. And I said, here's his phone number. Ask him if I can build your satellite. <laughs> and he went in, he, ma he made a phone call, came back in and said, be here at work at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. And I built the Explorer 23 uh, satellite for NASA. Oh, wow. I finished. I finished that. I got another one of these crazy phone calls that said, would you like to come to Houston and be a flight controller for Project Gemini and fly the Agena satellite? And I said, I'm not going to turn that down. <laughs> so wow. I did that. And then Lockheed offered me a lot of money to come and work for them and teach people how to fly satellites. So I did that. And it just the, it continued like that. And the Japanese government wanted uh, a set of people to help them build their new space center. And uh, out of the 29 people, I was asked to go along. And so I went over there for 14 months and worked for the Japanese space agency. Very fast. And I just, Interesting. I just continued to uh, work there all the way through 2007. Wow. Well, now let me ask you this: if if I was if my memory serves me correct, and I was reading up a little bit, and so you went to Pepperdine, Miami, and the University of Florida, right? That I started off in the University of Miami of Florida for two right. years. Then I went to the University of Miami and graduated. Then I went to Pepperdine. Well, I had a I had a company in California, and I I won a contract with the Air Force to provide technical support to the Air Force Satellite Test Center. And uh, it was about $15 million a year, and I didn't really understand the finances. I understood the engineering. Okay. And I figured I better go back to school, so I went back and got a master's degree in business with a specialty in finance. Okay. But did you have an engineering degree at all? No, I was learning how the hard way, uh, because I don't have any brains. I just kept on trying things and making more. <laughs> well, no, no, that's great. That's called tenacity. Um, let me ask you this. So when you were, so were you in the service originally when you started, when you were up in Alaska? No, no. No, no. I did three years in the Army at Fort Bliss, Texas, teaching people about computers and radars. Oh. And when I... When I uh, got out of the Army at the end of my three-year tour, I was asked uh, by a company to go up to Alaska. And they made it uh, very monetarily worthwhile to do that. 
Well, given that this is back in the 50s, um, when a lot of the stuff was at its infancy, I'm going to ask you, let's see, because I'm trying to think. There was a gentleman, you know, because you're in Citrus County. There was a gentleman that I ran into a long time ago that knew somebody else that was in the Citrus County area that apparently had worked on a very, very early – he was actually worked with Werner von Braun, and they worked on some of the space program, but they also worked on the very, very – early computer development and I can't think of the gentleman's name right now and he's probably no longer with us but did you ever cross paths with that guy does that ring a bell anything am I because computers because if even in the 50s it was pretty archaic but at least <laughs> f- from from our standpoint but you guys within the military and the, and and so on were were relatively advanced at that time still and even though you're using mainframes no, we weren't even using mainframes. We were using analog computers really? with, vacuum, with vacuum tubes, and they took a 40-foot trailer. Oh, wow. So it was a totally different. And then when I went to Alaska, it was transistorized digital computers. Interesting. And I had friends at Stanford University, and I said, quick, send me books on digital computers and transistors. So you just had a natural affinity for this? I mean, this is just something you gravitated to? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Now, what was? tell me about the uh, the satellite with the bull of a watch in it. You were telling me that story this afternoon, so tell us a little bit about that. Okay, that was uh, Explorer 23. Uh-huh. And what it was supposed to do was go into a circular orbit around the Earth and detect micrometeoroids. Because at the time, we didn't have a flying space program that we really knew what was going to happen. And micrometeoroids might have penetrated the spacecraft, and then all the oxygen would have leaked out, and we'd have a real problem. Okay. So I uh, was the team leader on building this, and NASA did the design, and then I, I did the, and my team did the building of it, and we launched out of Wallops Island. And what it was, because the frequencies that NASA uses, they only have so many of them. They wanted to turn this off at the end of the year. They figured they would have gotten their data. And the bull of a watch that was supposed to do that, you know, is 12 hours in a, in a uh, half cycle of the day, and there's 12 months in a year. So they modified the gear drive on the watch so that a month was equal to an hour. And at the end of the year, it failed, and the satellite kept on working perfectly for a number of years after that. Wow. So, did they ever figure out? Did, now, did that satellite ever come back to Earth? No, that was, no. It was in a high altitude, and it was circular. It's not going to come back to Earth for many, many eons. Eons. Okay. So, what's your thought on the space program these days? I absolutely love the space program. In fact, I, I watch a number of the SpaceX launches. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, what has happened in the space program is people who don't know how to say it can't be done have gotten in the space program, and that's what we really needed. Okay, so... And I, I think it's, I'm, I'm just hoping that I live long enough to see man land on the Mars. 
Well, that's Musk's idea. That's what uh, Elon wants to do, which, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's kind of a cool uh, endeavor. Oh, well, I certainly agree with him. <laughs> well, now, let me ask you this. So when you say that, so obviously if they could get politics out of it, so what Musk is doing is he's really kind of like doing his own thing, but he's got basically the blessing of the government. Is that kind of how this how his program kind of works? I I don't know how his program works. I don't have the understanding of how he finances everything. But let's look at it this way. He's got paying customers going up to the space station. Well, Did you ever hear of the U.S. government selling a seat on a spacecraft? No, <laughs> no, no. So he's a businessman, too, which is good. Yep. <laughs> Wow, absolutely but, fascinating. Um, the other thing I also appreciated was your the three little toys that you had in your in your private little room there back oh. there. Because I was telling a friend of mine about that earlier. He's listening right now, and uh, and and I told him I said, God, these are like these little Buck Rogers things. I remember seeing the the you well, know the old movies. A, that's exactly what was written on the side of them. They were Buck Rogers rocket ships. Uh-huh. That's and, uh huh. And I played with those prior to the Second World War. So I have to ask you, so as a child growing up playing with those toys, how, I don't know how to say this right, but how, I don't want to say far-fetched, but how, what goes through your mind as a child back then when we don't really, I mean, we're still playing around with cars. Now, granted, we're coming through the Industrial Revolution, you know, the 20s and 30s, and into an Arc Deco period, and, and some really cool stuff's coming out. But how do, do, is it? Does it seem like it's reality, or does it seem like it's like uh, this is just fantasy land? What were you neither thinking back then? Them. Neither one ne- of them. Neither neither one of them. Dick Allen, uh, who is a friend of mine, and I made our first rocket ship when we were either ten or eleven years old complete with the cockpit rocket. We understood that you had to go up into orbit, and you had to go around the world. And, you know, we didn't know it was impossible, which is the wonderful way to be. And so we just looked for the future. And I think that was, that's what Musk has done all of his life. He's looking at the future and there are other space pioneers that have done the same thing. Well, that's see, that's it's like we used to say uh, in in business or around the car world. Sometimes I always say, I don't want to hear problems to the solutions. I want to hear solutions to the problems. And I want to say <laughs> it's conceivable. We can do this. And you know, it's kind of an intuitive thing. Some people have it. Some people don't. You know, they look. It's kind of like the old: is the glass half full or half empty? Right, and uh, so it, there's optimism and enthusiasm, and and you know, looking forward. I mean, that's all part of it, and that's why when I look at people and I listen to your history and your background a little bit, and uh, you know, because you've always pursued, you know, uh, something that's pretty amazing. I mean, to the average guy out there, you know, when you start talking space program, it, it's hard to conceive of that. I mean, obviously, other than what we see on TV and and a few things like that, what you read about and. Um, but when you're actually involved in it and you understand what's going on, you have a completely different perspective. So you look at it differently, which is really 
pretty fascinating to me. Let me ask you this. What about some of the astronauts? Have you come in contact with some of them over the years? And, and what were they like? And what were their, their thoughts on a lot of this? Two quick things. Sure. I went to school with the second set of astronauts because that was the Gemini program. Okay. And since we were going to rendezvous in space between an unmanned Agena, which I was going to be flying, and a manned Gemini, which they were going to be flying, it was really smart of NASA that each of us knew about the other's spacecraft. So I actually went to school with these guys, and I learned about the Gemini, and then they came over and learned about the Agena. And they were, they were pretty nice guys. Uh, very, very good and at very self-confident. And they had all of their marbles. And it was really nice working with them. The other thing is, I'm going to work one day and I'm on the Gulf Freeway and I'm going significantly over the speed limit. <laughs> and I look in my rear view mirror and something is coming up on me that's really fast. And I just held my spot, and just before it got to me, it swung out into one lane, and right behind it there was this red thing, and it swung the other side, and two cars went by me. One of them was a blue Corvette, and the other one was a red Ferrari. And when I got to work, I went over to Building 4, which is the astronaut building, and there were the two cars been two astronauts. One of them had borrowed one of John Meekham's cars. And the other one had his own Corvette. And so that's the kind of guys they were. Wow. When you say John Meekham, you're talking about the same John Meekham that was involved with the Chaparrales? No, no, that that's Jim Hall. Okay, but... John, John Meekham had uh, Meekham Racing... Or Meekham Racing, uh, right, out of Texas, right? That's right, out of Houston. Okay. And, uh, and uh, go ahead. His cars were blue, and ran at Daytona, and ran at uh, Sebring, and and ran over in uh, Nassau, where Jim Hall had the white cars. Right. But he was out of Midland, Texas. Right. So let's talk about Haley's a little bit. And uh, okay. I, I played a little clip. Well, I was looking for something on the career of Pan America, and I know that was one that you had raised, and that's always been considered by many probably one of the most grueling races, uh, road races, really, in the world. And um, so you've done that. And you well, won I your did, class. I did, the, I did the recreation of it. Well, the recreation. Right, 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 right. So how how much did the original one differ from the recreation? The original one was almost 2,000 miles long, and the uh, recreation is about 200 miles long. Oh. So one of, them, one of them takes multiple days, and the other one you just, you're exhausted when you're done. You're exhausted. <laughs> And you need that beer at the end. You need that beer at the end. So what's the road course like? It's not a road course. It just is, it goes it's, out, it starts on one side of Baja, California, and goes across the Baja, through the mountains, through the desert, and then over and ends up in, in the Gulf uh, of Mexico. But, so, and, uh, go ahead. 
So it's a, instead of going up and down Mexico, it goes across the Baja. Okay. So some of the road's paved, some of it's dirt, some of it's desert? Nope. No? No, it's, it's all paved, but a lot of windstorms come through, and oh. some, of the, some of the areas get very sandy. Okay. And, and the Mexican government, you know, doesn't care about the sand. You, you're only driving slow. Huh. Well, if you're driving really fast and you're driving on sand, you know what happens to the rear end. Yes. So I paid a lot of attention to where there was sand on the road or where there was uh, bad bumps in the road, things like that. So tell us a story about your navigator. Your navigator kind of tricked you a little bit, right? And that's kind of how you... you, I thought that was an interesting story. Well, my navigator was a very crazy fellow from England who has no fear whatsoever. Okay. And... We'd had a couple of adventures here in the United States, and I, I knew that his, he understood cars, and he was, he was just crazy. <laughs> so I pre-ran the race, and I made notes on it, much as Jenks did for uh, Sterling Moss in the Mila Mila. And then I put those into my computer, and I made a, a big, long chart, and I put it in a Kleenex box. And I told the navigator, who had never seen the car and he'd never seen the race course, you read these notes and give me hand signals as to which way we're going, left or right, and how fast I can go through. And he said, yeah, he could do that. And we started off. And if a car, a curve said uh, left 60, I'd go through it at left 60. And... He did that for a few miles, and then where it said go through at 60, he'd tell me it was 65. A little bit later, he'd tell me it was 70. <laughs> and it, up until he figured out that he had figured out what the differential between what I thought I could do and what I really could do. And so as a result of that, we went very fast. Uh, and we had, uh, the only problem we had was in the desert when the oil temperature, if you went over 120 miles an hour, the oil temperature would go off the peg. So I backed down and it turned up that if you were at 118, you could leave it there and it was as happy as a lark. And, and you got through a lot of miles. And so we did that, got to the end. There was the sign with the big finish. There was a guy there selling beer, and we went through the finish line with the brakes locked up so we could get a cold beer. <laughs> well, a very fitting end for a very grueling road race. So, interesting, interesting. Now, that, that was in a 100F, which they only built 50 of them, okay. and it was, the fact, it was the factory race car. Now, is this the one you got out of British Columbia? No, this is a no. That was a hundred four. Oh, okay. No, the hundred S I got out of a chicken coop in California. For real? For real. So, okay, now this is a hundred S. Now these are like pre-production, or these are works cars, right? Yeah, they built fifty of them for guys to race. 
Okay. First one was sold to a guy named Briggs Cunningham. You may have heard of him. Uh, his name rings a bell. Yes, it does. Out of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> little white cars with little blue stripes across the middle or somewhere. That's the one. That's the guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was sort of a good story. Yeah. The, uh, it was all, the, the car was owned by the president of the Austin Healy, well, Austin Healy Pacific Center. Okay. Which, which is a pre- precursor to Austin Healy Club USA. Okay. And if you asked him if it was for sale, since he was president and he knew everybody, he knew about what you could afford, and he would always price it out of your price range. <laughs> and I figured out what he was doing. And we had a, a friend of, I had a friend, who was a very, very good mechanic. But he didn't have any money. And I said, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up and look at the car. It's in a, it's in a chicken shed. It's a, partially a part. And see if you, if you can buy it. Now, he knows you don't have any money. So I'm going to give you money. <laughs> Bring a second person along to verify the number that he tells you. So Dick goes out and he does the deal. You know, he looks at the car and he said, whoa, is is there any chance that could be for sale? And the guy said, yeah, for this much money, knowing that Dick couldn't afford it. The other guy says, would you repeat that number? How much? The guy repeats the number. Dick reaches in his back pocket and starts pulling out $100 bills. Oh, my. And... The, it, when he pays for the car, the guy says, oh, I can't sell it to you. I won't have a car to drive to the Healy meet. Well, he, his car is all apart. And there's no way he's ever going to put it together. And Dick's moment of real thoughtfulness says, you know that beautiful Sprite I have? That's part of the deal. You get the Sprite, so you're going to have something really nice to drive. And he calls me up and he says, you bought 100F. And you bought my Sprite. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Now, what so, year was this, roughly? That was uh, somewhere in the early 80s. So how did the car, what's the history on it? How did it wind up in a chicken coop in someplace in California? Well, it ended up, it, it was purchased originally by a dentist in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He then sold it to a gentleman uh, up in Illinois who raced it in uh, around the uh, that area and up in Canada. And then he took a job out in California. Okay. And what he did to get the car to California is he put angle iron on the front of the car from the frame up in front of the body great big pieces and then he put tow bar on that and he towed the car to california and i have pictures of him doing this oh wow well i have the pictures but for a couple of years i didn't know where those things came from and i was at hershey uh no was it uh carlisle and the guy's came up to me, this guy came up, big tall guy, and said, uh, 
I understand you've got a 100F. And I said, yep. He said, anything special about it? And I said, well, the only thing special is it's got these two great huge things on the front. And he said, yeah, I, I welded those on before I pulled it out to California. Oh. And, and he provided me some photographs of it. Then he sold it in California, and it was raised in California. And then the president of the club bought it out of a backyard. And then I bought it from him, and, and uh, Dick got the thing running. And uh, <coughs> then we did a, went through a, a whole concourse with it, and I continued to race it. And it's, it now has, I sold it, and it's in uh, the Netherlands. And it's completed the Mille Mille four times, and it's never broken down. Now, what's special about the 100S motor over, let's say, like a 100M or a regular 100 engine? Now, what year was this? What, this car would be what, like a 53, 54? 52? No, it's a 55. 55, okay. So that would be actually a, a, a Series 2 100, right? A BN2? Or no, it's not. It's a hundred S. And the difference is, a hundred S is all aluminum. Oh, it's all aluminum. Okay, for lightweight. Yep. The engine has got uh, about one hundred and forty horsepower instead of a hundred or ninety or a hundred and ten. Okay. Uh, it's got bigger carburetors. It the transmission uh, doesn't have an overdrive. And the rear end is a 2.9, which is strictly for really high speed. Okay, right. 2.9. You know, it's not. Yeah, 2.9 is not going to be in your drag racers. No, 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 no. A 3.9 <laughs> would be, but a 2.90 gear ratio is kind of tall. That's a highway gear. Yeah, basically. I do. Interesting. Okay, but, go ahead. Yeah, it's a right-hand drive and uh, wonderful steering and wonderful balance. I raced it at Laguna Seca. I raced it in Mexico. I raced the the last race at Riverside three times. The, the city council would say, "Well, you're going to close," and they'd say, "Oh no, well you can do one more year." I raced it at uh, Sonoma and a whole bunch of different places, but those are the the ones that are well known. So, of the tracks around the country that you've Raced now. Was that the only car that you had? Did you race, or did you have other cars that you raced besides the 100S? No, but I've been on a number of the uh, Formula One tracks over in Europe. In fact, I, I did. Uh, I've ridden on the Zandvoort uh, track. That's Holland, correct? Media. That's in Holland. Yeah. Okay. The uh, the fellow that bought the 100S from me, and I became very good friends. And he, for one year, was the director of racing at Opel. And he invited me over for a DTM race, which is Deutschland Touring Car. Touring, uh, yeah. And uh, they were going to do demonstrations of sports cars, and he took it out and uh, passed everything that was on the track, and they black flagged him. And uh, when they did that, he went and said, who, who black flagged me? And they said, you know, the guy upstairs. He went upstairs and he said, uh, I know what I'm doing. I want to take the car back out, and if you don't let me do it, Opal will not be racing on Sunday. <laughs> Leverage. And uh, that was a fellow named Wheat Hortocopper, 
And unfortunately, uh, he died about three or four months ago. Oh. Uh, he was a, a hell of an engineer. And we had a lot of fun with the Healy. I'd, I'd go over to the Netherlands, and uh, we'd just go out and go drive as fast as we could. So, so of the, but, so is the hundred S probably the most unique Healy that you've owned? That no, no, no. Because you've had. I, a, I've been very, I've been very fortunate. I've had some very unique Healys. I had a nineteen. The oldest one I had was a 1948 Healy Westland. And uh, I, try, I tried to get it restored here in this country. And they, the big places said, well, we'll put you in the line. It'll be two years before we can start. Oh. And, well, because it's all aluminum and wood frame. And it turned up that uh, I had a friend over in Australia that does aluminum work and aluminum race cars. And I called him up and asked him about it, and he said, if you bring the car down here, you'll be first in line. So I moved to Australia for five months, and I was the guy that swept the floor. Uh-huh. I, was, I was the guy that, if there was a part that needed to get sandblasted, I did the sandblasting. If somebody had to go to the store, I was the one who went to the store. But, when I got all done, car went back into the container. I shipped it over in a container. It came back in a container. I took it out of the container. I took it to a show in uh, North Carolina that was put on by the Austin Healy Club of America, where this is who you, the people who are here today were from. Uh huh. And I won. And I won best of show. Amazing. Amazing. I then went. I then took it up to uh, Stowe, Vermont, for the British invasion. And the judges uh, looked at the car and they said, uh, "Well, one of the one of the stoplights is out. One of the brake lights, rather, is out." And I hand, handed him a book and I said, uh, "Here's the Lucas wiring diagram." <laughs> You may notice that they only have one brake light. And they said, oh, they took that off. And then the other judge says, well, this is metallic paint. You didn't have metallic paint in 1948. Well, I happen to have the original sales brochure. And in the back, on the back page, it offers the color metallic green. <laughs> And when they got all done, they told me it was the highest num- or the lowest number of point deductions that they had ever had in a car. That's fantastic. Bill, so, we are just about up against the clock. Now, here, I, I mentioned okay. it to you today that I said that this is going to be probably a two-part show. So what I would like to do is invite you to come back next week because we didn't even touch – the surface. We didn't even get to Healy's. We didn't even get into the book yet. And we didn't even get into the, the show this weekend and your amazing toy collection and some of the personalities that you crossed paths with over the over the past couple what, of decades. What is, what is this about a book? A book. It's called The Healy Book. 
Oh, you mean the one I wrote some years ago? <laughs> that book, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, so, I would be, I'd be more than happy to do it with you. Absolutely. I was just glad you came out, and I hope you enjoyed the visit here at the house. I enjoyed the visit. I enjoyed talking to Nancy, who, by the way, I did not know she was a, a, a fashion journalist, which was really interesting. And then she crossed paths with uh, William Buckley. I mean, she had an interesting. She's got an interesting story herself. Oh, so, she is. She's a very, very interesting lady. Yeah, so uh, we might have to do something with her someday. But anyway, but I definitely want to have you back. Um, obviously, we're going, there's a couple events going on because the Healy, the Conclave event is taking place. It started Sunday, so it was yesterday. Had the car show. Today was the visit at your house. Tomorrow is the autocross, and then it wraps up on Thursday. So, um, without further ado, I'd like to definitely invite you back next uh, week. I'm going to be at the at the autocross tomorrow, and uh, truly enjoyed having you on the show this evening. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I hope uh, the your listeners enjoyed hearing a little bit about the Healy's. Uh, the Healy's we'll do more uh, Healy's next time. The Healy's in the space program. Bill, you take care. Say hi to all your friends, and we'll see you tomorrow at some of the events. And again, thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Have a good evening. Bye you now. Too. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, sports car fans. Uh, just, you know, the, the, the car hobby just has just amazing people, interesting people. So it's just fascinating. So get out there, drive your cars, read up on all these specialty cars, these classic cars, these sports cars. We've got to keep the hobby going. Get your kids involved. Get your grandkids involved. Get your aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews. Get everybody involved. I want to see you guys at some of the car shows. In the meantime... Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports. In the meantime, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.